establishing connection to Science Night. Please stand by. Welcome back to the Science Night podcast. My name is James. With me is Jason. Hello, friends. And of course, Chris. Hey, hey, hey. Tonight, we got an amazing episode. I'm really excited to get into this one. In our new segment, we have potentially the oldest finger painting we've found in the history of putting finger paints onto things or painting with their fingers. And then we're going to talk about how screens can affect the way we comprehend reading. And at the end of this episode, I have a conversation with David J. Peterson. He is the person that has either expanded or created your favorite fictional language. So you're going to want to stick around for that one. But first, let's talk about the news. Gentlemen, we've all been there. You're walking through your neighborhood and you see maybe that neighbor you don't really love that much has installed a new concrete sidewalk or has done something in their driveway and you just can't help but go in and stick your hands right into that concrete. It is a tale as old as time. And based on a, an article in the journal Science Bulletin, it may be over 200,000 years old. Uh, what we have is a team from Guangzhou University uh, laid by, led by David Jiang. So this is a Chinese university. Uh, they found potentially 200,000-year-old handprints found in travertine rock deposited by hot springs in the Tibetan plateau. So... You're, you're asking, like, what does this have to do with finger painting? What they think is some kids were smushing their hands into this soft deposit of stone in potentially an artistic fashion. Now, there is some controversy over who has done this. Was this artistic? Is this even really as old as the article is suggesting. So this is not like a settled piece, but I thought it was interesting enough to talk about. So what are the two of your thoughts on this? Uh, is this art? Does it matter? Who did this? You know, this is 200,000 years ago. Is it even a different lineage of humanity that was not Homo sapiens, that was not us? So let's talk about it. Well, first, I want to thank you for bringing this, uh, bringing this article up for us, primarily for your tacit admission of committing a property crime, <laughs> allegedly. But also because I find this story so endearing beyond the science, beyond the debate. First, humans are just, just so awesome that, you know, you give kids a bunch of mud and they're gonna stick their hands in it and make handprints and dance and make, make a big mess. And I just love that that is so such a common and, you know, built in thing that it transcends the ages. And we have evidence of that here. Yeah. It makes, makes me happy and warms my heart. Um, the other thing though, personally, I would fall on the side of, yes, of course it's art because humans were expressing themselves. Maybe the expression was, you know, 
hey, this mud is awesome, dude, or whatever. But it, it's still an expression. It's a moment captured, you know, that we have that. We've found it. How, you know, rare and precious are these imprints, you know? It, I don't know. The, the, the mind kind of wanders and, and drifts into imagination. I can, I can almost, like, dream up what that scene must have looked like sure. all those eons ago, you know? Yeah. And, you know, for me, I'm just really happy that after two episodes of not talking about anything anthropological, that we're really rooting ourselves back into my comfort zone. And that's all that really matters here in the Science Night podcast. Um, James is liable and comfortable. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) We get to talk about my favorite thing, which are Neanderthals. Denisovans and how they potentially interacted with Homo sapiens, be that living in the same area, be that the fact that cool things were happening in this area at this time, Um, you know, 200,000 years ago, it's pretty unlikely that these were Homo sapiens, AKA our handprints. Um, But Jason, you'll probably be able to talk about that in a little bit more intelligent manner than myself. You give me way too much credit, James, but uh, thank you. I'll take it. So I, I, first I want to say, I agree with Chris. I think it's art. Um, and I say that mostly because like, I still have handprints from my kids that they made, you know, like Thanksgiving time where they've turned their handprint into a Turkey hanging on our fridge. Um, and so, you know, I don't see any reason why this isn't better art than that. But to your point, James, about who made these handprints, it's a good question. Um, because 200,000 years ago in the Tibetan plains, you know, there was more than one species of human at the time. And that might be debatable as well. Whether or not Neanderthals are considered um, human or not is, is something that, that is up for debate or has been debated. But I think that generally the authors of this article have, are, are thinking that these are more attributable to the Denisovans, um, which is a group of archaic humans um, archaic Homo sapiens, in fact, um, they have, it's a subspecies, or at least some people would argue it's a subspecies of archaic human Homo sapiens. Some would argue that it's a separate species altogether, but still within the genus Homo, um, just like Neanderthals are. So uh, I think the thing that, that everyone can agree on is that it's an early member of our genus that did this, whether it was our species or a subspecies of our species or another subspecies that's closely related is, is I think the, where the debate could lie. I don't have a dog in that fight. I really have no opinion (laughs) whatsoever. I just think it's really cool. And frankly, um, I think the three-dimensional relief of this in the travertine limestone, right? So travertine, you mentioned this before, is a particular type of limestone that is formed usually from the minerals from hot springs. And so there wasn't anything special about this being travertine, except that that's just the kind of stone that, that eventually, you know, was laid down here, but they did make a big deal about that. And so, um, sure. I'm not sure sort of what, where they were going with that. Um, I had a hard time kind of, you know, putting my mind around, um, around why that was an important fact here. I wonder if that had something to do with the dating, if they have to be very specific about the type of stone so that the dating procedures could be repeatable. Um, I, I don't know enough about geology. I know that, Limestone deposits are good for dating things because you can look at the layers of de- uh, deposits and hmm. kind of 
peel those away generation after generation till you get to the layer of the art. And that's how a lot of cave art is dated fairly accurately, at least to the amount where we can be like, this is early human. This is, uh, this is anatomically modern human. This is culturally modern human, which there's some debate on whether that's really a thing. Um, the, that delineation, uh, this is potentially Neanderthal. Like we have the debate going on in, in France in a cave right now. But the point is that that could be why they were so specific as to this being travertine rather than some other form of limestone. So James, I have a question for you because I have sort of been out of the anthropology game for a long time now. And so I haven't kept up with the most recent discoveries, but you know, I'm familiar with the Denisovans. My question is, were there Neanderthals in the Tibetan plains at this time at all ever? Or are we really thinking more along the lines of Homo erectus, not necessarily Neanderthal? but Homo erectus being the other potential group that this could have been. I'm thinking that it was Homo erectus, and I'm going to actually pull up the paper now just to see. Sure. Uh, because I'm still wondering why it was so important that this was travertine. I, you know, maybe the, somebody, maybe the, the popular science reporter was, was redoing their bathroom and really thinking about what kind of tile to, to get. I'm actually flipping through a geology reference right now <laughs> uh, from back in the day uh, when I took geology. And, there is mention of travertine in here. And I think what maybe the important point here is that travertine is very muddy mm. when it's, when it's got water in it, but the, when the water is sort of cut off, like the hot spring is cut off or there's no more access to that water, it hardens very quickly. And so I wonder, it's kind of like uh, sand in that regard, right? Sure. Um, or potentially. Um, so I'm wondering if that, if it was really just a detail that seemed to get recycled over and over again, but it wasn't just the popular science accounting of this. I went back to the original paper and they were mm -hmm. talking about it sort of ad nauseum, right? Um, like, yeah. you know, I don't need to know anymore that this is travertine <laughs> rock. Right, the point is, man, you know I mean, mean, I guess, I guess they could, you know, guess that they're saying it maybe to relevate it to like, you know, this stuff known to create great prints because of how easily it, you know, solidifies. Maybe that's kind of the angle. You want handprint fossils? I got you handprint fossils. Let's mm. just get some travertine. We'll make sure <laughs> we'll make sure we get it right, you know? Yeah. Right. Well, and I'm also wondering if it's another way to be like, maybe we need to uh, take another look at these areas and see if we can we can replicate these findings by by looking at other things. Although I think that's probably simplifying it a bit too much. Oh, I can't um, wait to see what other body parts the people in the uh, <laughs> in the sure. uh, the troop put into the travertine. Uh, it could have went way off the rails if I was given this much free will. <laughs> well, the reason I think that output. we only have hands and feet at this point is because uh, Xerox machines weren't around. Yeah, us. we don't have you sure. know. We don't have backsides. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the next big discovery is a, is an imprint of a, of a, a butt and a, and a, an actually like one line and it says Og's face right underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> Oh man, this is, we gotta, we gotta get this back on the rails folks. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so we're so, on the far side side. Yeah. Now, that's what I mean. Right. <laughs> that's right. 
fags face. <laughs> right. That's right. I'll never forget the phagomizer, which is the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the four end of the, prongs the at the end of the stegosaurus tail. Right. It's called the phagomizer. What this reminds me of, this story specifically with handprints and footprints being immortalized through time in this mushy surface is one of my favorite stories and all of what we, I guess we would call biological anthropology uh, anthropology in general is the Liatoli footprint. Like oh, such yes. a great story. Tell um, James, tell the story, James, come on. Oh this is a great story. man. So what we have is a plane in East Africa, uh, the, the Liatoli Valley. There is about oh. 3.2 million years ago, we have a volcanic eruption and a layer of ash, volcanic ash gets mushified by a light rain, just a sprinkling of rain. Think about uh, the water trucks going over the dirt at your local demolition derby. But then you have things walking over this because, you know, people were getting around. Things were getting around. So there's evidence of bears. There's evidence of birds. There's evidence of these ancient relatives to uh, zebras. And there are hominids, meaning things from our lineage, walking across this plane. And it gave us some really great evidence about how these ancient ancestors of ours uh, walked because, you know, it wasn't homo sapiens. It was uh, Australopithecus afarensis. afarensis. That's right. Afarensis. Australopithecus afarensis. And it tells us how their foot was shaped and how they were able to navigate this plane. They walk across this mushy substrate and then another layer of volcanic ash comes down. It hardens in the sun and then is covered by another layer of volcanic ash. That's why we can still find it. And that is a great story in its own. How it was discovered is even better. Uh, so a team surveying the area under the auspices of, of scientific badass Mary Leakey is having a light elephant dung fight in the the uh Liatoli plain as you do as you do yeah, of just course. a just a little a little dung among friends just a, a friendly a tasteful amount Ooh. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. yeah 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 you know i'm yeah, sure a taste tasteful amount of dung at least and a handful as the dung is flying you're gonna need to find more dung like that's just how it goes you don't want to run out of your dung source <laughs> one of the local researchers sees this thing in the ground and goes and gets Mary Leakey. And she's like, uh, I will be taking over this. And there's some, some like less fun stories with the rest of how these footprints were uncovered that we're not going to go into just because I, I don't want to hear about it, but, uh, <laughs> but over a period of time, these amazing trackways were uncovered so we got everything. We got ancient footprints. We got volcanic eruptions. We have throwing of poop. It's really a story for the ages. And getting back to the story at hand, it, it really made me think about the Liatoli Trackway and how that really changed how we thought about Australopithecus afarensis. 
how they traveled across open plains. So maybe this will do something with Denisovans, uh, another hominid that we do not know a whole lot about. Moving away from the visual representation of handprints, we go to the visual representation of the written word. The article itself is maybe not the most relevant piece of this. It is a meta-analysis from the Journal of Research in Reading from 2019 by Virginia Clinton, who is a researcher from the University of North Dakota. And uh, this is a meta-analysis where she is looking at a series of studies that were gauging how reading comprehension is impacted by the thing that you're looking at while reading. So is it better to read from paper, from a screen, or from e-ink? Specifically, those were the three things in these studies. And what her study found is that very slightly, ever so marginally, reading from the paper was better. So that story is published in 2019. And then, wouldn't you know it, we spend almost two years staring at screens more than ever before. Who knew that we could spend more time looking at screens, but a year and a half, two years of pandemic, and this is what happens. So I think the interesting thing is the popular reporting, which kind of talks about why is paper a little bit better for reading comprehension. And what does that mean? What does that tell us about how our brain takes in this information? So I just, I I wanted to get your thoughts on this, like not necessarily the study itself. It's a meta-analysis and it's like very, very marginal things. So we're not going to be like, throw your Kindles away. But some of the things in the popular reporting is really interesting, like the fact that maybe our brains will catch up and this won't really be an issue. You know, we've been reading paper for a real, real long time and e-readers have only been along for so long. But um, some of the other things like endless scrolling and distractions were really interesting to me. I had a couple of thoughts about this. I will say that I read it initially on a screen and when I printed it out (laughs) and read it later, it did actually make more sense, but I am not sure that that's because I read it on paper or because I read it for a second time. Right. But that said, one of the interesting sort of aspects uh, that I thought about while I was reading this is that, you know, the primate brain is really good at mapping our space. So we're really good at remembering where things are relative to other species. Now, there is a a sex and or gender component to that. It turns out that female primates are better at mapping their environment than male primates are. Um, Generally speaking, that's a pretty broad sweeping statement, but generally speaking, that's true. And my my thinking was that, you know, um, on a printed page where you do have four corners, two pages, I guess you technically have eight corners, but four corners because you can flip pages here. That allows you to sort of map where you are in the structure of the story that you lose when you're scrolling, this endless scrolling. And so you sort of touched on this, James. This was sort of the take-home message was that perhaps our brain's having a hard time keeping up right now because we're not able to fix a point and Mm. connect that fixed point to another fixed point later on, right? Flipping pages, um, the authors argued, helps us uh, sort of pace ourselves, right? Keep time. And so that sort of pacing allows us to then assemble those those points in a series here and, and make connections between thoughts. Fascinating stuff, 
but I do almost all of my reading on a screen. And so I was sort of heartened by the fact that any of the gains that were found in paper relative to screen reading were marginal at best, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. right? Um, there isn't a whole lot of evidence that it's a significant change here. Reading comprehension doesn't dramatically drop if you're reading on a screen, at least not in terms of you know, comparing apples to apples. If you're reading something digitally versus reading something in print, there doesn't seem to be much difference. However, the, the authors also argued that perhaps the reason that our comprehension is reduced, or one of the reasons that our comprehension is reduced when we're looking at a screen, is because there's so much other stuff to distract us, right? Um, yeah, if I'm right. you know, on a Zoom with you right now, I could flip my screen a- a- away and I can start checking my email and I can still listen, right? I would never do that while we're recording up. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> right. I want, you got to have the full undivided attention, but, but I could do that. Right. Um, so you'll, now you'll never know. And that distracts us. I think it's aware true. of the fact that you could, that's mm. still part of your, your, you know, current understanding of what you're engaging in, which I absolutely think is right. And I don't always like maximize my screen so that I'm reading only one thing. Sometimes I have several different screens open, right? And, you know, I can see my email registering underneath the paper I'm trying to read and, you know, icons bouncing and whatever. And Mm -hmm. I get distracted and I end up having to reread that paper a hundred thousand times. Um, And it turns out usually by the hundred thousandth time, I realized that this paper wasn't worth reading to begin with because (laughs) it still don't really get the the take-home message. This is why I don't send you my papers anymore. This is this is the reason. <laughs> this is so reminiscent of work I've done in the realm of development. And especially when we're working across different code bases for different applications, it's, you know, you have to build up a context of the code base you're working in before you can really be effective in it. And if you you're switching contexts too frequently, you can measure, and I've done this, a decrease in productivity in terms of time required to recontextualize. I mean, this isn't, this isn't a surprise to probably anybody, but it's a real effect. And to that end, I can very much understand. And, you know, in, in another example, even within the realm of screens, going from you know, my primary workstation where I've got a couple of displays and I've got all of my tooling ready to go. And I'm in that environment going to something like a laptop, Uh, even if it's in the same darn room, it's that can be enough sometimes to kind of slow that brain to brain processing, you know, activity and, and come back up as I get my bearings again. And I think that that's a pretty pretty common you know feeling for people that you get a just you can't really do that on the printed page you know it's hard as far as i'm aware we have yet to install email clients on paper uh though (laughs) you know hey it could happen that switching is uh, just they go they bang it into our heads on various teams to do everything you can to minimize that switch. And so that makes all the sense in the world, but I'm not sure one of you brought up this other point that it's possible, you know, you you said something to the effect that it's possible our brains may catch up, especially given the, the fact that it's, it is such a small difference in, in measurable comprehension between paper and screens. 
And I tend to think, and uh, all of my teachers would disagree with me, but I tend to think that things like ADD are kind of a superpower in so much as, you know, relative to the general population, it's possible for one's brain to function in a capacity that is really measurably different. And I kind of think that's wonderful because it, it does tend to, uh, it can enable some, some positive things. And I think when we were kids, we spent a significant amount of time believing that that meant that we were bad. Right. The, but now we just refer to that as being neurodivergent, right? Right, 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 right. Or neurodiverse. And it makes me wonder, like, one thing that would be interesting to see is what is the sort of relationship between those things? As we are ingesting and processing information differently through different formats, what are the brain structures that we're allowing to be, you know, mm-hmm. part of normal society now that might be really good at parsing information in those environments? And, you know, what what does that enable? Who is going to come along that, you know, for whom that's... That's perfect. And maybe even can evolve with that. Maybe can even, you know, help those new trends, uh, technology evolve and change and get better. I don't know. I find that that, that kind of thinking really interesting, uh, especially as I think it's very likely that neurodiversity is going to be one of those things that um, our kids look back on and wonder why we, it took so long for us to get as a society. Sure. And perhaps this is a really tangible, you know, path toward that sort of common understanding, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting, Chris, because, uh, you know, one of the other, um, papers that was linked in this, you know, popular press version that we initially scanned over was from a researcher at the university of North Dakota that was suggesting that actually screens the scale is tipped to the favor of screens over paper when we're talking about the need to multitask right Mm -hmm. and so um if we need to be multitasking we are actually better at reading comprehension on screens than we are on paper because if you're looking at paper you actually have to move away from that paper to go do your other task Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. whereas on a screen you don't have to do that and so i wonder if there is a difference between individuals who are not weren't born plugged into a USB port, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who are tech unsavvy or less savvy than the younger generation that is mm-hmm. getting all of their learning digitally now or a lot of their learning digitally compared to analog. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, is it that they're actually developing a, a skill set for multitasking that those of us who weren't raised that way or raised in that time frame with the access to the screens that my kids have, for example, are unable to do and will never be able to do, or at least won't be able to do as efficiently because our connections in our brain, are already, our neuro, neuronal connections are already well-established. And yes, they can be remodeled, but it's, it's like the advice I give to students who are trying to write their first research manuscript, right, from mm-hmm. the lab. It's like, just get something down on paper and we can revise it. It's a lot easier to revise things. But once things are sort of baked in, you have to kind of go along the path that you've started, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe our neuronal connections are are too mature um, to the point where they can't be remodeled so that we are going to be able to multitask at the same efficiency with the same efficiency that the younger generations who are more digital native will be able to. Yeah. I will say... Based on the headline of this article, I was I was really expecting to be like, 
Well, obviously the kids don't know what the right thing is. And as I'm seeing that paper is, is very slightly edging out the, the little nuggets of, but it's because this is such a new thing and it's because our brains aren't used to us. And it's because we probably have older people in these studies too. And, and things like that, you know, the other thing with meta analyses is uh, the numbers can be so large that you, you get a, truer version but what you really want to see in these individual studies is was there controls for neurodivergence was there a skewed age group one way or the other in one of these studies that is is maybe accounting for this shift towards a better product being the written book and i i also thought it was interesting that they said the best thing to get for reading comprehension was a paperback apparently they also they also don't like a hardcover version of things. They want you to give it a couple months and, and wait for the, the second and third printings. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because the hard hardcover is just so much more expensive. That's all it is. Right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious so side s- detail. The CSS on the uh, website that's delivering this article to me right now is broken. And so all of the text is the maximum uh, font size. Yes, which means I that did it's notice that It's pretty hard well. to pull in the information right now, which is just really, really funny. <laughs> yeah. So digital trends, like uh, get your stuff together here. Your CSS is broke. That is the end of our new segment. But before we go to the break, I want to tease the next segment a little bit. Guys, I want to ask you, what do these things have in common? So we have the upcoming blockbuster remake of the movie for Dune. We have one of my favorite shows from the sci-fi channel, Defiance, totally underrated. If you haven't seen it, kids go out and watch it right now i don't know how you can watch it but you should find a way to do it and also the hbo series game of thrones what what do you think the common thread for all of these things are i've seen none of it that's the common theme it's pathetic because i generally pride myself on knowing a bunch about popular culture but i have seen none of this the answer to this and so many other properties. We're talking like Marvel movies. We're talking Disney movies. We're talking other movies, I'm sure. It is David J. Peterson. And my conversation with him will be coming up right after this quick commercial break. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. David. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast for this segment of the podcast. You know, when you said you would do this, I immediately got that sheer joy of, Oh, I'm going to get to talk to somebody that I, I really kind of idolize their work and the way that they approach their work. And then the, the terror of I'm going to have to talk to this person 
in real life in a couple days. Oh no. But you know, I'm I'm gonna keep it together for the for the kids. That's good. Because if you if you screw this up even a little bit, I'm just gonna close the laptop and that'll be it. What you do is is amazing to me how it blends linguistics and art and history and kind of all of the branches of greater anthropology to create this language that is fictional is something that I feel is so underrated. You know, you talk to the average person, they'll say how their favorite uh, franchise has this language and all of this lore, but they don't know what goes into doing that. So why don't you tell us what is a conlanger, as as you would describe yourself, and then how do you approach the construction of languages? Well, conlanger is just uh, somebody who conlangs, and then a conlang is uh, short for constructed language, and it's just the de facto term that we came up with in the community. So basically, a conlanger is just a language creator, language constructor. I usually say language creator myself, but... Conlinger is fairly well known now, and really, there's uh, when it comes to creating a full language, there's no there's no single way to go about it. There's no right way to go about it. There are many many different paths, even within a single subbranch. Because of course, the very first thing that you have to do is decide why are you creating a language in the first place. Because there are many different reasons. You might imagine that you might decide to create a language just for use around the house, maybe use between you and a friend, you and your siblings within your family, and you can certainly do that. You could also create languages for fictional cultures, whether it's for a TV show or movie or uh, a novel, somebody else's novel, just one you're working on. Maybe even just a show that you like, for example, like creating a, a language for the Avatar The Last Airbender universe. That might be something cool to do. You could also just uh, create languages for international communication. So uh, that was why Esperanto was created, or for even different and varied reasons. Uh, and so really, that's that's kind of the first step. And so you can't even really answer the question of how do you approach language creation unless you answer that question, what's the purpose? Because as you might imagine, for these different overall purposes, you might be employing radically, diametrically opposed methodologies. For example, if you're creating a language for use with just your friends or maybe around the house, obviously it's very important to have words for things that you interact with in daily life. Mm -hmm. And not just that, but you also might want to make sure that the language is not necessarily easy to use verbatim, but easy to use for you and your friends. And so it works in a way that you and your friends find intuitive and interesting, right? On the other hand, if you're creating a language for a fictional culture, those considerations are really not relevant, right? Instead, what you're looking at is who are these people? What's their history? What makes sense for a language in that context? And then how can I best fit that image, you know? And in that case, it might be a language that has a long history. It might be a language for a time period that's very remote from your own, from a, for a place that's very remote from your own, uh, that might, they might not have the same type of technology. And so the, vo the core vocabulary is going to be very different. The idioms are going to be different. The entire scope of it is going to be different from a language you're just creating for yourself to use in the real world right now. And so that, I mean, really is 
the key from the very outset. And one of the most important things to know if you're thinking about getting into language creation, you got to be sure you know why you're doing what you're doing before you get to any of the other questions that pop up. We talk to scientists from a, a well-rounded background, although if you look at my feed right now, you would assume that they're all biological anthropologists. And maybe, maybe that's me showing my own bias, but you're really you you're always starting with that research question, right? And in this in this instance, it is why am I doing this thing? What you said that really stood out to me is specifically, uh, you know, alluding to coming into an already established work to create a language within that world, uh, like you did with the Game of Thrones television show. You know, you, the television kind of expanded on Dothraki and Valerian for that. And it really feels like you're having to get into the lore of the show while also finding the real world versions of that culture that you want to kind of incorporate into it. Could you talk a little bit about that process specifically? So there are a couple of different ways to look at that. Because with Game of Thrones specifically, if we want to look at, for example, the Dothraki, it wasn't me bringing in cultural influences, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. These were the cultural influences that George R. R. Martin sure, worked sure. with himself. And so the, then in terms of what I was doing, it was a matter of matching both the aesthetic and matching the research that he had done, right? Mm -hmm. And figuring out what elements of, you know, real world uh, language might make sense in order to fit that aesthetic. So for example, it was rather fortuitous that a good friend of mine happened to have joined the Peace Corps and went to Mongolia for three years while I was working on Game of Thrones. And he, uh, he had a blog and kind of kept us updated on his progress learning Mongolian and learning about Mongolian culture because, like, he was, he was not in Ulaanbaatar. He was, he was out there. He was in Agur the whole time. Mm. And, um, and something I, like, it's just like a tiny little thing, but something I found very interesting about the Mongolian language and, of course, just about the way of life out there is that Inside your gur, right, you have the central fire, which is going at all times. You have different types of fuel, right? Because there's, um, you know, there's wood, which is longer burning, but maybe slower to catch uh, and so on. And other things that can help it burn a bit hotter for a shorter amount of time. And one of those things is actually like cow chips or buffalo chips. I think that's what, what sure, you would say. Sure, sure, yeah. Like dehydrated English, right? manure, basically. Yes. Um, and you keep a stack of these so that you can toss it on the fire to kind of like gives you a, a little jet of flame. It doesn't last for long, but it, you know, if you're cold, that's how you kind of turn up the heat for a little bit. And in fact, in Mongolian, there's different words for animal dung based on whether it's fresh or whether it's dry, mm -hmm. which is um, not something that I would have thought of. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm a city guy, obviously. Sure. I, born and raised in Southern California. I don't know these types of things, but it's, so it's like, that's something about that way of life that I know I would have never guessed. And I also wouldn't have guessed that like, oh, okay, they actually have two entirely different terms for this, which seem to come from entirely different roots. But it's like, given that I knew that part of the major influence for the Dothraki, uh, for George R. R. Martin was Mongolia from the era of Genghis Khan, it seems like, well, this is something that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like, even if you want to say these cultures are totally separate, this is a fantasy culture and not related, they occupy a similar environment. 
using a similar level of technology. And so it seems like they probably would have hit upon the same thing. And there's a very good chance that they might have the same lexical distinction. And so I incorporated into Dothraki. That's the type of thing that helps inform the process. And really the place where it's most key is in the lexicon, in idioms, mm-hmm. figuring out, well, what what is a language? Like, like, what kind of words are there based on the fact that they live in an entirely different environment from one that you might have grown up with? So that's really where that level of archaeological research is most helpful and most instructive. When you're creating a language, so, you know, the Dothraki culture is not one that we can actually find, but there are similar things that we can look back on. When you're creating a language for a culture that has never existed, like an like an alien culture, specifically, I'm thinking of of your work on the the underrated show Defiance. Um, God, for that. I love Defiance. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful. Um, do you approach it in a similar way? Are you looking at broader distinctions in those senses, uh, since you don't have a closer approximation that you can pull from? Well, there it's it's much more like writing. So Defiance, first of all, was uh, and still is my favorite project of all time. I've worked on a lot of different things, and it's been many years since Defiance. And there have been things that I very much enjoyed working on. Bright, uh, for example, mm-hmm. was one of them mm-hmm. for Netflix. That was a great one. But nothing has matched Defiance yet. That was the best experience of my professional career thus far for so many reasons. But one of the big reasons is that I actually did a lot of work beyond language creation for that, including I helped flesh out a lot of the histories and backstories and cultures for the alien groups. It was a doubly unique situation. First of all, because the people on the television show didn't invent all of this lore. It was invented by a video game company. And not only that, it was kind of in flux, which... (laughs) proved to be difficult it's like at, <laughs> at a certain point the uh, the show people had to say listen you you have to stop changing things because that's not how we work <laughs> and so like if we keep going like this it's going to be too different um so there was that but also the the bigger thing is that when i was brought onto the show it had one showrunner rockney o'bannon who did work with he's best known for alien nation and so i came to work on the show through him and was you know creating the languages and everything for that. And then a few months after I was brought on, he left the show. And a new, like uh, the entire writing staff did. And so a new showrunner was brought in who brought in his own writers. And he looked around and said, well, okay, this is, this is nobody's show, right? This is not my baby. This is not like the show that I dreamed up and you're not fulfilling my vision. This is all of our show. So let's have everybody contribute. And everybody did. And so it was, it was wonderful. So basically like what I had with defiance was like, you had these very cookie cutter, small descriptions of these aliens that didn't come from the writers. They came from the video game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so like, we were kind of working together to figure out, okay, how can we make these be less archetypal, I guess, sure. make them more authentic. Cause we're going to need that, you know, for a game, I guess it doesn't matter as much, especially it was kind of a shooter. But for the show, you needed more than that. And so what I kind of did, uh, and I worked with the showrunner and also especially with Brian Alexander, who was very keen on the lore. He was the uh, script coordinator at the time and then went on to be a writer. I worked with those histories and then created backstories mm-hmm. um, and created histories and just kind of 
the way I looked at it, and this is the way I still like to go about things, is rather than say, okay, these guys are mostly like this culture, instead, what you say is, these were the historical circumstances, and these were their kind of like sociological circumstances. So how might they react to this? Sure. What sure. kind of things might they do? And so like one things like we knew about the Castathans, for example, was that they were, you know, politically savvy. They conquered a lot of these other alien worlds before they came to Earth. Mm-hmm. And then we're kind of used to being in charge. And so like the question was, well, how did that come to be? What was it like? And so one of the things that especially helped with the development of the Castathan vocabulary and also their idioms and, and definitely influenced the religion I came up with for them was that um, there was this incredibly like jingoistic nationalistic period and kind of like a, uh, a set of generations that felt and believed that, you know, their way was right and that everything that were do- they were doing by conquering worlds it's like this was something they were owed and it was really going to be for the benefit of everybody else and a lot of their metaphors come from this era right and so i kind of like took the vocabulary and said if you had like an entire like it wasn't even one generation if you had like three generations where this is their language and this is their mindset for the bulk of them how would that put its footprint on the lexicon? What kind of idioms would they come up with? And how would those translate to like a modern day? And a lot of the lexical work I did for the Castathans really dated to that era. So like mm-hmm. well before the they even came to Earth. Um, and then I, it was kind of like moving from there and figuring out, okay, that was that point in history. Okay, and then how do the other cultures react to that? How do you react to another culture coming in and basically taking over your planet and implanting your government? How is that reflected, you know, in the language? How is that reflected in your culture? And so it was like, rather than saying these guys are like this country or these guys are like this country, it was just like, this is the situation, you know? Sure. This is the situation. How might how might they react? It comes off the screen so much more organic because of that. I'm rethinking about all the episodes now, and you do see the rigidity of one group, the kind of down-on-their-luck feeling of the other group. And it's not just the language, it is the delivery of the language. You have like a, a stricter... Um, more caste-based... I, am, I, am I wrong in saying it would be like a caste-based society? No, that's why they were called the Castathans. Okay. <laughs> this is the video game company who came up with the name. They're like, okay, they have a cast system, so we're going to call them the Castathans, and we were just stuck with it. I <laughs> appreciate you putting so much more thought into <laughs> how you approached the rest of the show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we did, look, we did our best. We did our best with what we were given. That's <laughs> all we were doing. <laughs> But, um, you know, uh, the delivery, the delivery of those lines, you can feel the rigidity in that system, um, you know, just in the way the language comes through. So much fun. Uh, I I love that show so much. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear it. I did, too. 
you know um i'm sure a lot of people are tuning into this thinking oh they're gonna talk about game of thrones the entire time nope bait and switch we're already past that (laughs) the next two hours is is defiant talk (laughs) (laughs) but i do want to move on away from what you've done to establish languages for an entire society for something at a fictional nature Because you do this professionally, but you also enjoy constructing languages. So Mm -hmm. have you ever just constructed a language because you wanted to have a language that sounded this way or that kind of like had this feeling behind it, even if it wasn't a full language, just like collection of phrases? I mean, for 10 years, that's all I did. I mean, uh, I mean, the specific timeline is, uh, you know, I created my first language or started it probably in October of 2000. I think that's probably when it may have been September because of course we started school in August of Berkeley, but yeah, it was somewhere around September or October of 2000. And I got the job for Game of Thrones in October of 2009. So I guess nine years, but in between that time, I mean, I went from creating my first language to being a very active member of the language creation community. So, I mean, honestly, by the time Game of Thrones had come along, I had uh, at least started uh, 17 different languages. Some were bigger than others. At least one of those, uh, maybe two of those, are, are still among my largest in terms of vocabulary size. But that is absolutely how I did it. My first language that I created was not very good, but partly because of what I talked about in the opening. I didn't have a specific stated purpose. Mm-hmm. And so I both wanted to use it for my daily life and I wanted it to be easy to learn and I wanted it to be linguistically sound and I wanted it to also have like a fictional culture attached to it. And it's like, yeah, you can't do all those things at once. It just doesn't yeah. make sense, right? Sure. And so that's that's what I ended up with. I ended up with a language that had no purpose. It just didn't suit any purpose at all. But after that, especially as I came to learn about the language creation community, I started to create new projects that were better. And this is the way a lot of language creators start. It's like I became enamored of one language. And so I created a language that was like that. Mm-hmm. I had a Hawaiian-like language. I had a Turkic-like language. I had a Swahili-like language and an Uktitut-like language and so on. And I kind of moved through them and each one would get expanded up to a certain point before moving on to another. And that continued on until it got to a point where I was just like, well, why don't I just create something that I enjoy without having to bother thinking about any other language, you know? So how I came to know about the ins and outs of a constructed language. Like a lot of people, I took a linguistics class and that Mm -hmm. was a section that we we started with we, you know my professor mm-hmm. decided we were going to start with introducing constructed languages and then throughout the rest of the term we were going to construct the language in parts you know lo- using what we learned my professor's name was rolando Cotto solano he is a very large fan of yours. He is a enthusiast of constructed languages. Specifically for him, it is uh, a lot of the languages of the Star Trek universe. He is a, a big fan of that. Um, but as a final project, we had to create a language. So I threw my hat into the ring and I created what I was calling a Neanderthal language. And 
Man, if you're sitting at home right now thinking, well, you just throw a bunch of sounds together and that's it. No, there is so much more work into it. I probably put more work into my B-plus attempt at creating a language than I did for anything else that entire semester. Uh, so I can <laughs> I can tell you there is so much thought put into this process. What What university was this? Dartmouth College. I don't think we have a full linguistics department. It's like a, a program, but yeah, you all, you also, by the way, uh, were the home formerly, maybe maybe actually currently, of a professor who got his PhD at UC Berkeley uh, in linguistics, whose name is David Peterson. Oh, I okay. met him once. <laughs> one of the one of the uh, yep. the, the circle of David Peterson linguists. <laughs> yep. I wasn't kidding when I said I met a bunch of other people with that name. Yeah, there he is. He's still there. He's okay. still there. He's he's David A. Peterson. Got it. Um I am I am uh, David J. Peterson. <laughs> oh, oh, Tim Pulyu is there? I know him. <laughs> this is ridiculous. How have I there not been how we have gotta, I not we been gotta invited get you to this on university? Campus. You oh. also have a professor there named Laura McPherson, which is the exact name of my wife's sister. Um <laughs> This is ridiculous. How have I not been invited to give a talk here? I'm I'm insulted. It's probably because of David A. Peterson. I don't think he's a fan of me because, you know, we share a name and people sure. can confuse uh, him you've ruined, me. You've ruined his SEO. Yep. <laughs> what I'm finding out is we need to have you intimately involved with the Dartmouth Linguistics Program. We'll be creating an entirely new generation of language constructors and uh i know we're getting in towards the end of the amount of time we've allotted but i have a just a couple real quick questions um, kind of rapid fire style first is do you have a favorite real language uh non-constructed language i guess we would call it yeah my favorite uh, my favorite natural language is hawaiian far and away Uh, i love the hawaiian language i love the sound of it i love everything about it if there was a, a language that I wanted to be totally fluent in, it would be Hawaiian. I did definitely fall for the grammar of Arabic, which is a wonderful language, and, and it was so much fun to study. But uh, but still, my number one language is definitely Hawaiian. Okay, my second question is, do you have a favorite non-constructed writing system? Uh, not, not just a language, but actually the writing system. Yeah, absolutely, Sinhalese. That is uh, at really, really strikes the balance between ornate and curvy and and beautiful versus you know practicality there's a curvier nutsier system and that would be the chom language but that just i don't know it takes it too far uh <laughs> strikes the right balance it's beautiful beautiful, beautiful. for everyone listening that does not have an idea what we're talking about. I will have versions, uh, uh, links to all of these languages on the website for this episode. So, so fear not, you will be able to experience what David is talking about. And my final question is, uh, so everyone that's listening to this right now has now become enamored with constructed languages. Uh, how could people get involved with this community if that's something they find interest in? Well, first, uh, in order to actually, you know, be a language creator, you don't have to do anything other than start creating your own language. Like, and you can do that uh, being as linguistically informed as you'd like. And that means knowing absolutely nothing. That's certainly where I started. And many of us did. We just were, were bit by the bug. We had the love of it. And so we just sat down and did it. And that's really all there is to it. 
uh, if you want to get involved with, you know, the various communities that exist, the best place to start is the Language Creation Society, whose website is conlang.org, because that one will point you to the various other communities that exist where other language creators get together and chat about things. There's a big one on Facebook. There's a subreddit, our conlangs on Reddit. There is, uh, and then there are various like wikis that have bulletin boards attached to them, like Con Workshop. There's a big Discord, which I still don't kind of get, but maybe that's just because I'm old. Um, there with you, know, you. <laughs> but there are lots of communities out there. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. The last thing I will allow you to plug anything. How can we support you? How can we follow you? How can we make sure we know what the next step for David, not a Jay Peterson? <laughs> uh, the two things that I'm most excited about right now, um, I currently have a show that is airing called Motherland Fort Salem on Freeform. We're in the back half of season two, uh, so it'll be it'll be over soon, but you can catch up on Hulu. Um, and Motherland Fort Salem was actually the first project I ever worked on where I worked with somebody else. I worked with uh, Jesse Sams, who's a professor of linguistics at Stephen F. Austin University, where she also teaches a language creation course. Mm. And we worked together to create the Miniche language for uh, Motherland Fort Salem. And we were having an absolute blast with it. And uh, we worked together so well that we actually also created our own YouTube series called Langtime Studio. And what we do there is we actually create languages to, together on the stream two hours every week from 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific on Thursdays, starting from absolutely nothing and fleshing it out until the end. We just recently started our third season, which is our third language. We're, we're creating languages for anthropomorphic animals that I am uh, using for a board game that I'm creating. We've already done a language for rabbits, a language for opossums, and now we've started a language for mice. I will have links to everything that David just mentioned in the show notes for this. Thank you so much for joining us. That is going to do it for this episode of the Science Night Podcast. Thank you to David J. Peterson. And if you listened to that conversation that just happened, you know why the J is so important. So thank you, David, for talking to me. My name is James. You can follow me on Twitter at James underscore read three. Jason, my where name, can they find you? Uh, my name is Jason. You can find me on Twitter at OregonJM. Chris, tell the kids where to find you. You can find me on Twitter at GreatGoulet, G-R-8-G-O-U-L-E-T, and all the rest of my shenanigans at ChristopherGoulet.com. Follow the Science Night podcast at Science Night One, or visit our home on the web, SciNight.com. That's S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T.com. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. For more information about our shows, check out riverpower.xyz. tried to learn some Dothraki, but I was so scared of getting the pronunciation wrong that I think we should just go to the interview. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put that in as the uh, end of episode stinger that I've been connect, that I've been adding. <laughs> that seems reasonable. You're getting them all. <laughs>